0: It's going, to, it's going to require a lot more flexibility on the grid. I think some of the numbers that I've seen Troy, Troy throw around from, from some sources, we need to like 10x the amount of flexible load on the grid if we're going to electrify uh, the grid with renewables to the level that we need to meet our, our net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And Bitcoin miners, because they're highly scalable and controllable, you can dial them up and dial them down very quickly. Um, they basically act as sponges to absorb over... You know, production and monetize renewables that would otherwise be just completely wasted, but also turn down when the grid needs it.
1: This is the second part of an interview I did with Matthew Pines. Matthew Pines is a consultant for the Bitcoin Policy Institute. The Bitcoin Policy Institute is an interdisciplinary cohort of economists, coders, lawyers, climate scientists, philosophers, and policy analysts providing research, fact-checking, and commentary on Bitcoin. They advise the U.S. government on various subjects related to Bitcoin. In this episode, Matthew discusses his views on Bitcoin and energy consumption, and he discusses why it can be a crucial tool to develop environmentally friendly sources of energy. Here is the last excerpt from that interview. Matthew, would you mind summarizing your views on energy consumption, Bitcoin, and ESG, because I think Troy Cross, who who also works at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, has done some very good research on that.
0: Ooh. Yeah, yeah, you should have Troy and Margo on to talk about this. Um, this is their this is their cup of tea, and I, I just sort of um, regurgitate with what, what I see them uh, uh, analyze. But it is a th- there is a lot to um, analyze when it comes to Bitcoin and energy, and there's a number of different levels to play on it. So. One angle just is general is just um, systematically looking at how Bitcoin mining is evolving because it is the one part of the network that is like inherently physical, right? Like you have to physically connect to power sources. You have to build infrastructure. You have to make very large scale commercial contract deals. So it has the political dimension, which is like, well, they're the most politically exposed part of the network because they have to plant somewhere. Now, some parts of it can can be more mobile but at scale, these things are big and they have to, you know, invest in capital, plant, equipment, employees, tax, etc. So that is the part of the industry that's generating the most, I say, like uh, political relevance because they have to they have to look at their you know, state. Ca- you have to get the permits. They have to talk to the local politicians. It's all about jobs and tax base, etc. So that's one angle to look at is just how it's going to how Bitcoin mining is going to start to play uh, you know, probably the first the first element of kind of political um, you know, have political heft to it and and is also politically vulnerable. And so it's going to require political engagement. But from an energy perspective, you know, that is like a story that's already changed dramatically in the past year. It's probably going to change dramatically in the next year. Um, And I think the the prevailing narrative is it consumes a lot of energy. And like, that's obviously, yes, like it consumes a lot of energy, you know, on certain terms, relative to say the global energy production, it's like a minuscule fraction. Um, So it's not necessarily going to like, you know become like the global single largest energy consumer uh that's not going to happen but as like a novel novel form of data center it's it's very large (laughs) Um, uh, and and so it does merit an analysis of where is it getting its energy and you know if you have views on climate change and you want to reduce carbon emissions which is i think what we want to do and i think that's a very positive story when you start looking at it under the hood because of the nature of the incentives that it provides to renewable uh, you know, operators, right? Like we don't have a um, uh, reliable base load from, from wind and solar right now. And it's really hard to scale those in a way that can provide what we want out of our energy system unless we overbuild them a lot. But the problem is when you overbuild wind and solar a lot, you still have that intermittency problem. Wind doesn't blow all the time, sun doesn't shine all the time. And so you get the sort of you know, swings. And batteries are are proposed as one solution to sort of smooth out that intermittency, but when batteries are hard to scale, once they like charge up, they can't take any more. So if you have say a lot of wind blowing for four days, say the first four hours, the batteries charge up, but then the next four days of strong wind, all that energy just gets curtailed, goes goes straight into the ground, um, and so you're still you're just you're still wasting a lot of energy. And batteries are expensive, like rare earth materials, like we've, maybe we're waiting on some on technology breakthroughs, but to think about grid scale batteries in a way that would enable this build out of, over of, 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 of renewables to sort of make up for uh, declining baseload. It's going to, it's going to require a lot more flexibility on the grid. I think some of the numbers that I've seen Troy, Troy throw around from, from some sources, we need to like 10X the amount of flexible load on the grid if we're gonna electrify uh, the grid with renewables to the level that we need to meet our, our net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And Bitcoin miners, because they're highly scalable and controllable, you can dial them up and dial them down very quickly. Um, they basically act as sponges to absorb over you know, production and monetize renewables that would otherwise be just completely wasted, but also turn down when the grid needs it. And that essentially gives the grid operators a very um, unique resource to help them control the stability of the grid but also, you know, improve the economics of all the uh, power generation on the grid, uh, and particularly improve the pa- the, the renewable econ- the the economics of, of renewables um, uh, because they don't make money when they're putting the energy into the ground. Um, so that's a that's gonna be a fascinating dynamic of. But it's not just renewables; also like flare gas mining, um, where you have you know methane being released or, or burned, and you can instead convert that wasted flare uh, natural gas into Bitcoin uh, in a much more efficient way uh, and net reduced carbon uh, or net reduced greenhouse gases. So you're still generating carbon dioxide, but methane is like a 40 times more potent greenhouse gas than, than, than carbon. Um, so just between methane, solar, wind, but also nuclear, you know, one of the big problems with nuclear has been, well, you know, societies have been sort of scarred by nuclear disasters and that's related to really onerous regulation, It means that you, in order to make a nuclear power plant economically viable, you have to like have it be massive (laughs) and then spend like billions of dollars on going through all the compliance and all the safety to build these massive nuclear power plants. That's why we haven't built a whole lot of nuclear power plants in the West. And if you're going to take away other reliable sources of base load and you don't have nuclear, that leaves you with wind and solar, but that leaves you with this this sort of intermittency problem. And so how do you incentivize more renewables, especially smaller scale renewables that, just recently have been uh, sort of cleared their own regulatory path to the Department of Energy to do what's called small modular reactors using technology like thorium molten salt, um, which are much more safe, don't rely on kind of, don't have as much like proliferation risk with like uranium um, and can be used in much more small scale modular operations for like a small city or small town, like a few megawatts or tens of megawatts. And the question is though, you know, they still have a lot of startup and capital upfront front costs. How do you sort of monetize that bootstrap and like one of the bigger Bitcoin mining companies called Compass signed like a thirty-year deal with um, one of those uh, sort of small nuclear uh, companies called called Oclo, uh, to to sort of have that synergy where you know uh, Occlo now has like a guaranteed buyer of their energy and upfront capital investment to help them scale some of these operations and and then can sort of then s- expand them knowing that they have sort of this Bitcoin mining revenue source and and that's like a that's an interesting. This is just just starting. Like that's the fascinating dynamic is people are underplaying because Bitcoin is sort of this unique form of energy demand, so sort of geographically agnostic, scalable, modular, um, and can be monetized at the source. So if you have, a, you have a, a hydro plant, you know, in the middle of Africa, nowhere near a city, well, no one has any incentive to put any generation there uh, or or build out infrastructure to you know help develop the surrounding uh, economy. Uh, but Bitcoin miners do. Bitcoin miners definitely if that's like a great power source potentially, they don't need transmission lines, they just need an internet connection. But once they do that, then that generates development, generates sort of the infrastructure, and then you know makes the like return on investment for connecting that building, you know, electrifying or providing power to the surrounding community much higher. So that's several years down the line. But I think this sort of this baggage of ESG has been you know whacked as a political cudgel on, on Bitcoin and you know, needs to be fought against. But I also think like the facts are gonna change so dramatically for the positive. That's just like, in, and I think in in three or four years, it's gonna be like obvious how dramatically positive Bitcoin is for, for our climate <laughs> objectives. And I think it's gonna come not from the Bitcoin community, it's gonna come from the grid operators, the power companies, the renewable companies, the, you know, like the like everyone that's actually sees this as like just a business opportunity, not like a moral case. Um, and and yeah and so things I'll, I'll finish with uh, Troy Cross's particular idea here, which is uh, I'll let him explain it. I probably will, will, will butcher it, but essentially the idea is there's there's trillions of dollars of ESG quote unquote capital that is like very simplistic in the sense that they like review any investment and if it doesn't pass like their immediate smell test, like or if they can't defend it obviously they won't they won't do it. Uh, and the problem with Bitcoin is because of this sort of perception of it being environmentally harmful. They just like can't pass that first sort of check. Um, but how do you? So so how can you sort of remove that barrier? Is an interesting observation that he made is that essentially you can um, uh, offset your relative contribution to the incentive for new mining by mining uh, a direct proportion to the amount of Bitcoin you hold. So you know, if you if you own one percent of all the Bitcoin in the world, to offset your incentive to the rest of the mining network, you just need to mine yourself or pay for 1% of all Bitcoin mining. And you can then mine your values. So if you like mining with natural gas, you want to mine, you want that to be incentivized, net positive, then you would mine that. But if you want to say, if you want to mine your values and your values are carbon, like you want to reduce carbon, well, you can mine yourself or, or buy a mining product. It says this is a one, this is a um, carbon negative or carbon neutral mining source. And you can buy that and not it's not like a, carbon credit, it's not like you're paying for some, you know, this digital sin, you know, uh, uh, absolution. It's like an actual market investment. Like you're, you're investing in Bitcoin mining um, and you're helping to secure the network, uh, but you are, you're sort of counterbalancing whatever effect you had on the larger, uh, potentially um, carbon intensive mining uh, around the world. And so it's like an investment product that could unlock trillions of capital because now people can invest in Bitcoin and then immediately say like, we, we are carbon neutral because we have purchased this Bitcoin mining. But it's not in this sort of, you know, kind of a scammy um, carbon credit way. It's, it's actually putting more investment into Bitcoin mining as, at, at the same time. So that is a dramatic, uh, be, if that kicks in and I think there is some action on terms of that turning into like a real real financial product that large institutions can, can buy, that, that solves the ESG problem like in a snap But doesn't doesn't create kind of the pathologies that like a carbon credit or some sort of like certification would otherwise create and kind of hurt fungibility on the network like the Kevin O'Leary thing like green coin or whatever. Um, This is a market driven voluntary solution market solution to both like an economic problem and environment problem and it sort of has a flywheel effect that's very positive for Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining so like a brilliant idea Um, really excited to see where that goes. Uh, and I think that combined with what's happening with, with Bitcoin mining is going to, I think, dramatically change the perception and just reality of Bitcoin mining in the next few years.
1: Well, thank you very much, Matthew. Where can people get in touch with you or follow you or follow the Bitcoin Institute? Uh,
0: yes. So myself, I'm on Twitter at Matthew underscore Pines. Uh, so feel free to connect and send me a note. Then um, the Bitcoin Policy Institute is at um, btcpolicy.org. And we have some of our materials posted on there. There's also a donation uh, link. Uh, you can uh, put your email in and, and get a newsletter if you want. Uh, so, yeah, we're um, really excited to contribute. And if you have good ideas, please reach out. Looking forward to, uh, you know, talking.
1: Okay, Thanks great. For me. Great, Matthew. Thanks very much. And a word again from the sponsors who helped make this show possible. If you are interested in any of these products, click on the link in the show notes and you will be supporting this podcast. First up, the script. Are you interested in having your own podcast, but don't know how to get started? The idea of editing your own audio files intimidates you. I use the Descript software to edit this podcast and I highly recommend it. It's easy to use, much easier than any other editing software I know. You can record directly on your PC or Mac or on another device and then import the files. It also produces a transcript of your audio files. Best of all, they have an overdub function. That means that you can type in text and your voice generated by the program will read the text. So when you need to add in a word or a sentence to an audio file that you forgot to say during the recording, you can use the overdump function to insert it afterwards. I highly recommend the pro version, which is what I use. And if you pay annually, it costs $288 a year. I really think it's worth it. Use the link in the show notes to connect to the script and help support this podcast. Next up, BlockFi. Do you want to get interest on your crypto, whether in bitcoins, stablecoins, ether, or many other crypto assets? But you hear of all the hacks on the DeFi platforms and lack trust in the protocols. You're afraid that the protocols are not sufficiently battle-tested or that some nefarious actor will get the keys to the protocol. CeFi, or centralized finance, is an alternative. With BlockFi, a majority of the assets are held in cold storage with Gemini. They lend your assets to market makers and, and brokers and use, by and large, the same risk management techniques as banks do to manage credit risk of their counterparties. Furthermore, the rates are guaranteed for 30 days, so they don't fluctuate every day like in DeFi. The main difference here in BlockFi vis-a-vis a bank is you do not get a guarantee by a regulator, like the FDIC in the USA or the in Switzerland. So if you do have a situation like a run on the banks, BlockFi will not have an explicit guarantee by the government. But with a proportion of your crypto assets, it could be worth it. And of course, let me remind you, there are no explicit guarantees from an outside source in DeFi either. And DeFi is fraught with all sorts of risks that most people don't appreciate. And also, if you own crypto and want to use crypto as collateral to get a loan in fiat, you can do that on BlockFi as well. Next up, Shift Crypto. Are you looking for a hardware wallet to store your Bitcoin or other crypto assets? Consider Bitbox, made by Shift Crypto. They are based in Switzerland and have been very well audited. The CEO, Douglas Backham, was on this podcast, and you can find that episode in the same place you found this episode. The other co-founder, Johannes Schnelli, was a Bitcoin Core developer and submitted his first line of code to Bitcoin Core in 2013. Also, if you like cool design, this product has the coolest design of all hardware wallets I know. Use the link in the show notes to get started and to help support this podcast. And finally, Braintrust. Are you a software engineer, UI designer, content manager, content marketer, and would like to work independently as a freelancer? And you think privately held platforms like Fiverr or Upwork take much too much of a commission? Braintrust has replaced the middleman by code, and the amount of take-home pay you get on the Braintrust platform is 100% of what you build. Other fields of work are being added continuously to the Braintrust platform as well, so check them out to see if they have a job for you top of that on brain trust you can make money by referring other people to the platform as well look at the two episodes i did with adam jackson and your favorite podcast player adam jackson is a co-founder and ceo and find out more about how brain trust works click on the show notes to get started and help support this podcast